Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, today's guest is no stranger to Mud Between Your Toes podcasts, nor is he a stranger to me. And yet, even though I've known David Fox since 1975, it struck me that I knew precious little about his 25-year career as a war correspondent. Obviously, I received snippets of news about David, but like so many friends divided by distance, well, as they say, out of sight, out of mind. So it's with delight that I have David here with me today to talk about reporting in hostile environments and a few famous people thrown in for good measure. So David Fox, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks very much, Pete. And I'd just like to say for your uh, regular listeners, I'm one of the few people who actually recording in your studio, even if your studio happens to be a beautiful terrace overlooking a lovely Saikung Valley and one of the best-looking gardens in Hong Kong. So with that in mind, you might hear a few dogs barking and a few um, doves cooing in the background. Right, Mr. Fox, we spent much of our youth together whilst at Prince Edward School in what was then Salisbury, Rhodesia. But I think, as I recall, we were so naughty, your parents had the good sense to remove you from Prince Edward and send you down to Bulawayo to complete your education. Was it at Prince Edward or in Bulawayo where you first knew that journalism was in your blood? No, it was definitely at, at PE. I remember, I don't know if you remember, we used to get one copy of the Chronicle delivered to the uh, hostel every morning, uh, of the Herald, I beg your pardon, in, 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 at Salou House. And it was meant for the housemaster, but I used to, you know, sneak out and try and read the newspaper before uh, Bill Cock got to read it. I was always fascinated by news, and um, and especially when we were doing history. I, you know, I remember our big fat history teacher Frank Kennan, as we used to call him. Uh, we were learning contemporary history, and and that fascinated me. And I knew I knew I wanted to be a journalist even from a, a very early age. And of course, we grew up in a very uh, newsworthy country. But after leaving school, you joined the Argus Group as a cub reporter. Is that similar to the Australian cadetship? It's it's exactly the same. Yeah, we uh, it's a two-year system. And um, the first six months, it's based entirely in the classroom. You, you have to get your shorthand up to 120 words a minute. You have to get your typing speed up to 60 words a minute. You learn all about uh, newspaper law, libel law, this sort of thing, and um, just the basics. And then after that, you get sent and you're spending three, four months in every department in, in, in the newspaper. So it's very much a, a, an apprenticeship, if you like. So David, when was that? That was, oh, where am I now? Oh, my, my years get fuzzy, but I think it was... 1980? Uh, no, 79, 80, yeah. Okay, and, and, and tell us a little bit, a little bit about the Argus Group, because I don't, actually don't know much about them. Well, the Argus Group was the biggest newspaper group in Southern Africa, and it owned all the top newspapers from everything like the Star in Johannesburg to the Cape Argus, uh, uh, you know, uh, all the big newspapers in South Africa, and all of the newspapers in, in Zimbabwe. And uh, uh, but when it went from uh, Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, 
the government forced them to sell off their uh, Zimbabwean holdings, and that was formed by a company called Zimbabwean Newspapers Limited. And so, that's when so they were taken while over. you were with them, were there any scoops for you? I recall you mentioning a story about the murder of a Springbok rugby player. Yeah, indeed, that was um, uh, that was uh, Andy McDonald. Uh, it was one of the. I was still a trainee in those days, and but I was based at the Chronicle in Bulawayo, and it was uh, at the end of uh, end of the war. But uh, while they were still. Uh, people were being reintegrated into the army, and there was a group of um, a substantial group of uh, of uh, uh, zebra uh, commandos who were uh, being a bit recalcitrant, and they were raiding farms in Madabiniland. And um, and Andy McDonald was a uh, a former Springbok prop who rather infamously or famously, I beg your pardon, uh, fought a lion with his bare hands and uh, and killed it. And but he had his uh, two of his fingers bitten off in the process but still went on to uh, represent the Springboks. And I was at school with his son, William, at junior school. And when he was, uh, when his family were uh, murdered, uh, that was one of the first stories I covered uh, because I knew the family I got out there and managed to speak to you know, some of the surviving relatives and that sort of thing. It was, you know, a grim subject to cut your teeth on, but uh, it was the sort of start of things to yeah, come. Yeah, very, very tragic, actually, but not all the stories were tragic. I mean, you had quite a lot of fun, didn't you? Didn't you, didn't you meet Bob Marley? <laughs> I, I did, when he gave his Zimbabwe independence uh, concert. Uh, I went off, I was very much a junior reporter in those days, and, uh, and accompanied a, a much older uh, uh, veteran reporter. Uh, and we went to interview uh, Bob Marley, and uh, we had this, you know, great scoop. I mean, there was no one else sort of interviewing, but we got into uh, into the room with him, and uh, and he lit up this enormous joint, and said, "Here you go, you got to smoke the weed." And and of course, I was taking a lead from my uh, from my mentor, and he said, "No, no, no, I don't do this," you know. And and Bob Marley said. If you don't do the weed, you don't get the news. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the rest was history, as they say, <laughs> David Pops. Mm. Um, now, li listen, so you eventually moved to the UK. Was there any reason for getting out of Zimbabwe other than to further your career? I mean, Zimbabwe was becoming increasingly hostile for journalists in the mid-1980s, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I had, to, I had a run-in with the authorities in, um, in Medabililand when... Uh, when uh, Nkomo and Mugabe had their falling out, and Nkomo, uh, Mugabe's forces raided Nkomo's house, and there was a lot of rumours going around that he had been killed. And uh, myself and an AFP photographer called Alexander Joe, actually, uh, we went to his house and we we saw a whole lot of um, you know, clearly bodies uh, on the on the front lawn, and we sort of belly crawled towards them, and suddenly we were. We were held at gunpoint and, uh, and picked up and taken off to uh, the police camp in Bulawayo, and we were held for several days, you know, in, uh, while it, it was just to inconvenience us rather than anything else, so we couldn't report the news. But uh, in fact, at that point, Nkomo had fled across the border to Botswana dressed as a woman, 
Wow, I can't imagine in coma dressed as a woman. A How big amazing. woman. <laughs> yeah. So, so you moved to London um, to work for the Acton Gazette. Oh, hated it. Now, just before you start on that, I did a little bit of research on the Acton Gazette. One of its early scoops was the story of Jack the Ripper. After the Ripper sent a signed postcard to Ealing Police Station in 1888, did you have any similar scoops while at the Acton Gazette? I definitely did not. My the, the only front-page story I had while I was there, and it had the, uh, in bearing in mind, this is I'm coming from reporting on, you know, uh, internecine conflict in Zimbabwe, and my first front-page story at the Acton Gazette was, clean up our filthy park, say, pond mums. <laughs> that was your first headline. Yeah, I hated it. Listen, but, I, you know, I remember you saying how much you hated it, but, you know, those provincial or local newspapers are absolutely vital for journalists in the UK, I think. Most of the good journalists from the UK that I know did a stint at the North Cotswold Village News or the Hadley Community News or something like that, didn't they? Very much so. But, you know, it taught you the things like the, the dreaded, we call it the death knock. It's when, you know, somebody famous in your neighborhood dies or, or does something nefarious and you have to go and bang on the door and ask to speak to them. We call it the death knock. And I hated having to do that. Wow. Let's let's get away from the Acton Gazette then. I think yes. we sort of exhausted that topic. Let's talk about reporting in war and conflict zones. So from Acton, you fled to Bahrain to work for the Gulf Daily News. Now, as I recall, there wasn't any major war whilst you were at the Gulf Daily News. But that was the start of a long career back and forth in the Middle East, wasn't it? Actually, you're quite wrong. There was a massive war going on at the time, and, and when I was doing some of my first reporting, that was the Iran-Iraq war, which lasted uh, for ten years, and um, you know, and I was I was stringing them for for Reuters and for uh, and for AFP and for uh, AP and UPI at the time. It was it was also known as the tanker war. It was when a whole lot of tankers were being blown up. Uh, you know, oil was being prevented from getting out, and Iran and Iraq fought each other to, a, you know, a bloody standstill for ten years. I mean, that's incredible. You know, it's one of those wars that well, I'm sorry to say, but you know, I, I sort of is off my radar. But you know, from there, you also did a one-year stint at the Star in South Africa. Was that before or after? Uh, that was that was before uh, the handover from uh, white rule in South Africa. God, that must have been quite a time. I mean, was, what was it like as a journalist, or should I say a liberal journalist, working during those troubled times in South Africa? Well, I was working for The Star then, and bear in mind The Star was considered a very liberal newspaper as well. So, you know, I, I sort of found my, my denominator there, if you like. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't too bad. It was, I, I, I was working as a, as a sub-editor then, so I wasn't doing much actual reporting. And it was a bit, it was a bit of a cushy number. And um, I just remember going to lots of rugby matches and having lots of barbecues and, and being fairly apolitical, to be honest. So it was a fa fairly good year for you. Um, not many challenges then? No, no. Okay. And, and it was from there you moved from South Africa all the way to Hong Kong. Obviously, again, not a conflict zone, but this was kind of like your first tour of duty in Hong Kong. Uh, when was that? When did you uh, and who did you work for? Uh, that was in '89, and I spent a, a year at the Standard and then a year at the Post, uh, the South China Morning Post. South China Morning Post before joining um, Reuters. Yeah, 
But that was when eight, it was uh, an amazingly busy time to be a journalist, though, because it was uh, Tiananmen Square was going on. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of Eastern Europe. Um, it was an astonishing time to be working in news anywhere in the world because our newspapers were just full of these dramatic changes that were happening. And, and, and what was it like, um, Hong Kong, because you're now obviously working in Hong Kong again, uh, which we will probably get to later, but what was Hong Kong like then compared to today? Well, you know, present political circumstances excluded, um, I, I think Hong Kong is a much nicer place today. When in, in, back in those days, it was very much a white colony. Um, you know, there were... Uh, the, the Hong Kong, the local Hong Kong Chinese people didn't have anywhere near as much confidence uh, as they do today. Uh, they were very much felt to be part of, it was part of the British Empire. And um, on my second uh, time round here, when I arrived here, well, a couple, nearly a couple of years ago again now, before the, the saga started with, the, with China, I felt that the Hong Kongers had a lot more confidence, a lot more uh, self-awareness, uh, a lot more, um, uh, you know, a, a lot more strength. And... The um, umbrella revolution probably wouldn't have happened if they didn't have that Absolutely. kind of inner strength. Absolutely. While you were in Hong Kong, that first uh, tour of duty, as it were, uh, wasn't there a terrible tragedy uh, on a pleasure boat or a, a junk full of South China Morning Post journalists? Uh, there was indeed, yes. Um, and uh, I, I think it was—I think it was just before I left, actually. Um, and I, w I was a news editor at the Sunday Morning Post. And uh, one of my colleagues, Dave Bullard, was, uh, was on the junk. Um, it was a whole lot of journalists. And, uh, and he, was, he filed some amazing copy for us from that. But it was, yeah, it was a terrible tragedy. Uh, one of the guys lost both his legs. There were a couple of deaths. Um, it was on the Chinese New Year fireworks to, uh, exhibition in the harbor. Well, I mean... Um the number of junks I've been on, it's surprising no one else has had an accident. Oh, I think there have been a couple more, actually. So, you know, from Hong Kong, you then uh, got a job with Reuters yes. um, and moved to London, which, and you remained with Reuters for something like 21 years, didn't you? Correct. So this is where you and I reconnected after a hiatus of about eight to ten years. Now, Reuters put you up in a sensational house in Islington, and I kind of lived on one floor. It's also where I, for the first time, met your wife, Elizabeth Pisani. Um, was she still in journalism back then? No, she had just left, um, uh, and she had gone back to university to do another degree. Okay, so she had just come back from the Tiananmen Square massacre as well, yes. hadn't she? So all fairly sort of hardcore. Uh, let's do a little bit of leapfrogging. So from London, you were transferred to Brussels and then to Nairobi. Now, um, I think we should discuss Nairobi. Sorry, Brussels, but it's kind of like that movie, It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium. Not much happened in Belgium, did it? Well, actually, to the contrary, because it was in Belgium when I was first getting... It was my first real sort of conflict reporting was done from there. Um, I, was, uh, I was working as a sort of trade correspondent and, and doing foreign politics, but also doing NATO stuff. And so I was, you know, spending some time in, in um, uh, Yugos former Yugoslavia. And, and also I was sent off to, uh, to the Great Lakes region for the first time as well, uh, you know, just in the immediate uh, aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. Oh, so that, that happened while you were While in I was in uh, Belgium, I yeah. I see. Yeah. I see, because the Nairobi posting must have been 
well, I don't know, one of the more exciting, given what was going on in Africa in oh, the absolutely. early 1990s. I mean, Mugabe, Mandela, um, you know, it's fair to say that, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, Africa must have been where you really sort of cut your teeth in conflict reporting and pretty scary situations. I, I, I you know, I had, I had started, I have to say, I started in Brussels, but uh, when I was uh, then uh, moved to uh, Nairobi, that's when it was just full on. It was absolutely full on. I mean, there yeah. was the DRC, there was Somalia, Sudan. In Rwanda. Ah, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea. Mm -hmm. So whilst in Brussels, and forgive me for having said earlier that Brussels was a boring assignment, but you, you covered those extraordinary events in Central Africa. During that time, did you ever get to meet the key players from that arena? Uh, I did. I met uh, I met quite a few there. I interviewed uh, Joseph Kabila on a couple of occasions. And actually, there's a really funny funny thing about him. Because I interviewed him in Kisangani uh, while he was uh, still a rebel leader in eastern Congo. Uh, and um, Mobutu Sesiseka was very much still alive. And uh, I'd given him my Brussels business card, uh, which had um, my home telephone number on it. And um, I, th I think it was later that evening or the next day, uh, Elizabeth Pisani, um, uh, it was before we got married, uh, she was at home at, uh, at our home in Brussels, and the phone rang, and uh, she was, you know, hello, and it was, uh, bonjour, je m'appelle Joseph Kabila, you know, and it was Joseph Kabila <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the phone. He had phoned up my home number, and Elizabeth, being the, 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 the pro she is, ex-Reuters uh, journalist as well, was like, oh, well, you know, no, David's not here, he's actually in Kisangani. And uh, Kabila was like, yes, I know you interviewed me yesterday, but I want to tell him that we have now uh, captured Rurongara. And so Elizabeth, as I say, being the pro she was, carefully took all these notes down and then phoned it into Reuters, even though she hadn't worked for them for about five years, uh, giving us a rather good scoop. So you got the scoop, thanks to Elizabeth. <laughs> thanks to Elizabeth, yes. <laughs> I mean, David, it's not normal to lie in bed every morning and think, will I survive today? That's not the normal job that people do. So what gets you up in the morning? Well, I, I have to, first of all, I don't lie in bed and say, I hope I survive today. It, it's more of, um, you know, what can I do today? I think it's, you know, what reporting can I do? What, what can I say? What can I write that might make a difference? Um, it sounds, maybe it sounds a bit over noble. But you really, you know, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to be, you know, you've been given a really privileged position to people who are paying an enormous amount of money and putting a lot of trust in you to be able, you know, to be able to put you into these, into these positions. And so you've got to repay that by being as good a reporter as you can and by reporting as, you know, as fairly as you can on, on everything that you see. So, I mean... Okay, so how do you prepare yourself, say, they, you know, if you're told, right, tomorrow you're going into Rwanda to cover the genocide, you know what's going on. Um, I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about Rwanda. I think it's arguably the most documented and horrific of all our modern-day genocides, and one that was extremely complex, given that it pitted family members against each other. I mean, tell me about your experience in Rwanda. Well, I wasn't there for the genocide itself i was there you know in the immediate aftermath of it when um you know uh, uh, you know the hutus massacred the uh, tutsis and moderate hutus as well uh, and then the uh, tutsis via the rwandan the rpf the rwandan patriotic front invaded from uganda 
and pushed the Hutus out into massive, massive, massive refugee camps in DRC. And so my experience was more covering that. But there was just, it was just, there were huge numbers of massacres. I mean, I, I, I remember Biaro refugee camp where there's 50,000 people were chopped into pieces. When you were based in Nairobi, wasn't there a fair amount of terrorist activity? Blimey, yeah. I mean, I had, uh, I'd been in, in uh, Nairobi as uh, chief correspondent um, for about, uh, about six, seven months before I took over as bureau chief after the, uh, the great Nick Koch left. And uh, I'd only been in, in the job, which is the, you know, running the whole of East Africa for a couple of weeks, when I was parking the car in our office at Finance Tower when this massive explosion, and it was the, uh, the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. Uh, which kick-started the whole thing globally, didn't it? That's really, really when al-Qaeda got on the map, because at that point he was, um, he was based in uh, northern Sudan. Osama bin Laden was, yeah, and that really, uh, that, that re yeah, it, it was astonishing. It, you know, there was a massive explosion. It reminded me a lot of the one that, uh, uh, the recent one in Beirut, actually. It just blew out city, you know, windows for blocks and blocks and blocks. You were in Somalia during the terrible days of chaos. In fact, that was the first war where the rule book was kind of thrown out the window, wasn't it? What was it like as a journalist? It, it was it was really mad there, and uh, it was a really troubled time as well because I, I went into Somalia for the first time after two of my colleagues were killed, uh, Dan Alden and Hosmaniah, and um, they were killed alongside uh, two other journalists um, uh, in one horrible incident on, on the day. It was after the Americans had um, had captured. Uh, ooh, I can't remember. Forgive me, but. Uh, and, they, and the, uh, one of the militias took, uh, took vengeance on them. And so I was going there quite a bit after that. And it was mad. You had to have armed bodyguards all the time, but you were basically paying bodyguards not to kidnap you. Um, I mean, this was just after Black Hawk Down, wasn't it? was it? exactly that. Um, yeah. uh, Black Hawk Down was the operation that led to the deaths of Dan and, and Hoss. They were the journalists who were dragged behind the cars. Indeed, there were four of them, yeah. It was a horrific sight. I mean, it, it, people hadn't really seen that kind of thing in a war at that stage. Of course, there had been atrocities before that, but this was the first war where really there weren't any rules, were there? It, it was madness, and, um, and no one, you know, I mean, the Americans went in there ostensibly to, um, you know, try and sort things out, and they left with their tails between their legs quite quickly afterwards. It was it was absolute madness, but Somalia has always been mad. It's you know it's the origin of the uh, of the uh, that expression you know my country against your country, my province against your province, my tribe against your tribe, my family against your family, me against my brother. You know that's how their vendettas go. Um, you you went in and out of Sudan a lot, and I should imagine this was pre-partition of Sudan. Um, not all the stories are horrendous. You, you tell a, a very funny story about your time in Sudan. Can you relate that story to us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, definitely very much uh, pre-partition. There was, a, there was a, a real character working in South Sudan at the time, an Irish uh, Catholic priest called Dan F. And he was about five foot five. He was a, sort of a beer barrel with legs. And... Um, for years, he was almost the only white man in South Sudan amongst all these giant Sudanese people. You know, I mean, they really are. The uh, South Sudanese, um, 
they, they are very handsome people, but as black as ink, and the average height must be six foot six to seven foot. And I'd gone in with, uh, with Dan Eve uh, to a camp just south of Juba. We'd flown in, we had had a problem with, um, with the aeroplane, we couldn't get out again. So we were stuck there for a couple of days camping. And I remember just seeing these sort of um, three or four old Sudanese guys, you know, walking along. And they were literally stark naked, you know, absolutely stark naked. And they came up to, to our camp. And um, uh, Dan started speaking in uh, Kiswahili to them. And I, I, you know, I, I could follow rudimentary. And, and these guys were, when I say they were big Sudanese, that's where the myth comes, you know, not, not so much of a myth. These guys were hanging down to their knees in, in, <laughs> in every single way. But um, they answered back in absolutely perfect English. And it turned out one of them was the professor of anthropology from Juba University. <laughs> and, On a gap year. <laughs> uh, the, the other one was a, um, a professor who had done a two-year secondment at MIT, and the third was also a professor, and they and they were actually charming. I mean, we were sitting there discussing Shakespeare with these these with, three with gentlemen their tackle with, their, with their tackle, literally, you know, scraping on the floor. It was quite something. You didn't know where to look. <laughs> now, David, I know that you interviewed who, what I consider the holy trinity of Southern African leaders: Robert Mugabe, Ian Smith and Nelson Mandela. Of the three, who was the easiest to talk to? Who was the most difficult? Who was the most interesting? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question, actually, Pete. I mean, uh, who the easiest, uh, the most interesting? And, and, and that's for calling them the Holy Trinity. Well, I guess it, it, <laughs> and very unlike, maybe just the Trinity would be more appropriate. <laughs> um, Mandela was a, was, is, is obviously going to be uh, the, the easiest. I mean, he's, he's someone who who, you know, really just, he lit up a room whenever he was in it. Uh, and he made you feel so special, as if you were the center of the world. I mean, uh, my cameraman, my photographer, and I, we were all just, you know, we were starstruck. And I don't get starstruck very easily. And, and I was with him. He was just astonishing. Every, and everybody around him, you know, from, uh, you know, because we walked from one of his offices to another of his offices and you know he passed sort of doormen and cleaners and you could just see as if he had this aura with him whenever he went he was great to talk to and he was um, a very easy interview and and just a, an absolutely wonderful human being then you look at uh, Mugabe was just awful I mean I only had about 10 minutes with him and you could just see he hated having to do it you know he resented it he was just you know when I when his aides told him that I was from Zimbabwe, you know, I wasn't a foreign, you know, it made no difference to him, you know, I was still, you know, he, he, he mentioned it, he said, you are from Zimbabwe, but you are white, you know, it was quite clear that, that, you know, he just wasn't happy with the whole thing. And Ian Smith was, um, it was odd in a different way. I had a very easy interview with him. His son, Alex, um, uh, put me up with him. And, then, you know, I, won't, I went into his, um, into his house in Alexandra Park in, uh, in in Harare. There was no security. It was a very modest uh, sort of house, and, and just off Second Street Extension. And um, uh, and he's, he was going, going into a time warp. All the the furniture in his house. I've got a photograph of me talking to him. And all the furniture in the house is uh, it's like a, a, it's a frozen time capsule from the 1960s. And he was. Um, 
He was getting a bit past it at that point. You know, he was a little bit doddery, and his, you know, his memory of how great things were for the whole country obviously didn't include black Zimbabweans. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, but he was interesting, and um, and it was, you know, I think interviewing him when he was in charge of the country would have been more dynamic and uh, more interesting. But uh, when he was basically nostalgic and it wasn't it wasn't he he was irrelevant by the time i interviewed him but he he was not going to say sorry for anything that he had done no he was quite unapologetic that's for sure and he was um he came down hard on mugabe as well in the interview and he said he liked mugabe at first um uh, but then he obviously had a change of tone as mugabe's tone changed as you know for a lot of us that was the same case Okay, well, let, let's, let's go on to Eritrea, because I must confess, I know very little about that war. Uh, tell me about it, because uh, you mentioned to me that it was the last ever rail trench warfare. Yeah, well, Eritrea had fought a long, long uh, uh, independence war against Ethiopia. And it was only when Ethiopia was, was going through, most of Ethiopia was going through its own massive political struggles with the overthrow of the Derg regime that uh, Eritrea finally won it, you know, after a referendum, it won its independence. But there was still a lot of uh, hostility between the two sides, and especially over their borders. And then they clashed and, 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 and literally had a trench war along, uh, uh, along, their, uh, uh, along their border. And I covered it from the Eritrean side, and I had colleagues on the Ethiopian side. And we were in trenches, you know, less than 100 meters apart. And it was just mortars and shells, and and uh, I, there were accusations of gas being thrown by both sides as well. Although I have to say I never saw that, but uh, it, it was it was terrifying. I've never I've never been in in a situation for so long, such a sustained period, where if if you put a little finger above above the parapet in the in the trenches, it would have been shot off. There was so much metal flying around. I mean, quite incredible. I don't know how people do it, really. I don't. Uh, so from there, you were thrown into one of the most bloodiest and I think most extraordinary post-World War II wars in Europe. This, of course, was Albania, Kosovo. Um, I gather you read the incredible book by Anthony Lloyd, My War Gone By, I Miss It So. Yeah, I know, I know uh, Tony quite well, actually. Mm. And, um, what a wonderful, evocative title, isn't it? So Tony described in his book um, of the unspeakable terror and the visceral, ecstatic thrill of combat. Can you relate to that, too? Yeah, I can. I mean, there's, there's nothing... It's, it's, it is quite something else. The adrenaline, the dopamines that flow, when... When you come out of a, a really life-threatening situation and you come out alive and you realize you know, how lucky you were to escape from something like that, it, it is just an astonishing feeling. The high lasts for, it's better than any drug you'll ever take. I mean, it, that war and that whole, well, that region, um, the Balkan states, yeah, the, that was the first time they pretty much threw the rule book out, didn't they? I mean, it didn't matter whether you were media or not. You just got shot if you were it, in the wrong place. Yeah, it, it was. It or was, even the right place. It was. It was. It was pretty grim. It was pretty grim. And 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 it, it, to be honest, for me, I didn't like covering it as much because I didn't. I, I didn't pretend I understood it as much as I did some of the. You know, you know, the other conflicts in, in Africa and, uh, and, and in the Middle East and that. But, 
and I had colleagues who who are covering the Balkans and the um, Albania and Kosovo. They've been doing. They were real experts on it, uh, and I I wasn't as ex as much of an expert on it. And so it was a it was a real mystery to me. You know, it was much easier I found in Africa to find out who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. And and in uh, in Europe it was a lot more difficult. Mm. So David, we need to soldier on. I'm sorry about the pun. Uh, but time is getting the better of us, and we still have quite a few wars to cover. Um, so your next posting was Singapore, obviously not a war zone, but Singapore is the base for Reuters Asia Pacific. So that pretty much puts you in uh, a line for all the Asian conflict zones. And also, of course, while you're in Singapore, it was 9-11. So the world as we know it changed forever. And of course, this kick-started uh, the USA involvement in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Um, I know it's a massive topic, and I'm not quite sure where to begin, but tell us about your time in Afghanistan. Um, uh, sure, yeah. It, it, uh, I arrived in, uh, in January 2001 in, uh, in uh, Singapore, and uh, I was sort of working as a roving correspondent, so whenever if something big happened, I was almost always the first person to be sent off and, and go and cover it. And, and very quickly, there were a lot of things happening. There was... Uh, uh, the first story I, I left uh, from Singapore to do was the massacre of the Nepalese royal family, um, which was a fascinating story. I mean, it, it's, it's still uh, it's a horrible subject to say. It's, it's one of my f favorite stories I've ever covered. It, it had everything, you know, um, a, a drunken, drugged-up prince mowed down his entire family. And, and sure enough, just three or four months later, I was actually working on a night shift in Singapore, and I was looking, watching CNN out of the, you know, the corner of my eye, and I saw this plane fly into a building. And it was like, oh, my God, have I just seen what I thought I just saw? And, uh, and sure enough, you know, it was, uh, whenever it was, 20, 25 minutes later, it happened again. And I immediately, you know, I spoke to the editor-in-chief, and I said, I need to get to Afghanistan straight away. And he said, are you sure it's gonna, where, that's where it's going to go off? And, and I said, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so I left the next morning. I, I flew off and... Um, and, uh, and then I was gone for the next uh, four or five months, I think it was. And, and so you, you stuck it out in Afghanistan for four or five months. Um, in the meantime, did the Iraq war begin, the 2003? 2003. 2003. No, that, that was a, a year and a half later, you know. Um, so I, Afghanistan had, a, after the uh, Taliban were ousted, Afghanistan had a relative period of a good year, year and a half of, of some, you know, prosperity. Tons, there was a great deal of international goodwill. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Money was flying in. And, uh, and it was getting to be a bit stable. I was going backwards and forwards there. Uh, but then the Iraq war started because uh, the whole of the um, uh, uh, American sort of uh, uh, hawks uh, needed to... Uh, do something with this huge army they built up, and you know now we've got the world on our side with uh, Afghanistan. Let's see if we can get them on, on side with Saddam Hussein. George Bush wanted to get uh, revenge for his father, and um, uh, and next thing I knew, I was in Iraq. You're, so you're still working for Reuters, but uh, uh, yeah. tell us about covering a major war like the Iraq War, which involves a superpower, because. I mean, as I know it, the first Gulf War in 1990 was largely fought from the air and sea and to a degree by tank. 
while the Iraq war in 2003 was an infantry war, which is a very different kind of war. And very, it's a different ball game, a lot more insurgents, IEDs. And while the Gulf War was over in 42 days, the Iraq War lasted for almost a decade. Yeah, well, the Gulf War, remember, was just to get Iraq out of Kuwait. And once they got them out of Kuwait, you know, they, they left them alone. And, and that's partly why the, the Second War happened. They felt there was unfinished business. But this time it was an actual invasion of Iraq and, and to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Um, and they put up a bit more of a resistance. I mean, it was over pretty quickly there as well. But it was covering it had enormous amounts of challenges because, um, you know, a company like Reuters and all of the international agencies, we, you know, we had people who were accredited to the Iraqi side staying in Baghdad. Uh, and they were very limited in what they could report on. They, you know, they had press briefings by, if you remember, um, Comical Ali. That's right, yeah. yes. And then the Americans and all the coalition forces, they had two different kinds of accreditation, if you like. One, you could be embedded with, uh, with the coalition forces. And they, they were, you were severely restricted on what you could report. I mean, you could report freely, but it was when you could report it. So people were very frustrated. They couldn't report contemporaneously. Sometimes they could only report on what they'd seen two, three days later. Whereas um, myself and a, a photographer and a, um, a cameraman, we worked as what they called, uh, you know, we were independents. And um, so we weren't technically accredited to either side, but we could flip between the two. But we weren't given protection by either side either. And, and that offered its own series of challenges. So tell us about getting into Iraq. Uh, I, I remember the moment that that war began because, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, I think it was the most televised war in history, particularly from journalists, uh, as you said, reporting from both sides. And also, weren't there a whole lot of journalists in the Baghdad Hotel? Uh, it was the Palestine Hotel. Palestine Hotel. Did you ever make it that far? Well, I had to uh, because, I, as I said, I was working as a unilat. I went into... Uh, I was based in Kuwait, and the three of us, we had an armored uh, Land Rover Defender, which we called Brenda, Brenda the Defender. <laughs> and as soon as the invasion started, because we were, we were parked out, we were hiding on a farm right on the Iraqi border, and you know, as soon as the invasion started, we just, it, our Defender looked like a British uh, Army Land Rover. So we just drove behind a tank and just invaded with them, and then sort of overtook them, and, um, and off we went. And we were roaming around for a good uh, 10 or so days, uh, having you know, some astonishing adventures and, uh, and uh, you know, having a lot of lucky escapes as well along the way. Um, when uh, the Americans were getting onto the outskirts of Baghdad, and uh, the, uh, an American uh, tank battalion put a shell into the Palestine, or a couple of shells into the Palestine Hotel, and blew up the Reuters office at the Palestine Hotel, killing uh, at a Parish, one of a, a good mate of mine, who was, uh, our, you know, they, they killed two of my colleagues and put the, the other three out of action. They also did the same thing to the next door Al Jazeera office. And uh, I think it was Middle East News Agency was also uh, hit. And so suddenly there was an urgency for me to get into Baghdad, uh, you know, to take over the reporting from there, uh, which we, we, we had to do, which was an adventure in itself, actually. But, um, and, and I mean, you were in extreme danger from friendly fire as well. I mean, this whole thing, rules of engagement, where the soldiers are told to kill anything that they can't identify. I think you kind of saw the, the bad end of that, didn't you? 
Definitely, of all the, the closest shaves we had in Iraq, was every one of them was at the hands of the coalition troops, usually American troops. I mean, one of the things, and, and I think you would have seen, seen it firsthand, was um, the visuals of that war, and uh, much of it courtesy of Saddam Hussein, because he actually dug wells on the ground, filled them with oil, and lit them in order to create these kind of Armageddon-like distractions. Of course, you know, tomahawk missiles or whatever they were using weren't guided by eyesight, so it didn't really matter. But uh, the smoke looked absolutely incredible on the television uh, from our point of view, I must say. It made for amazing pictures. Uh, you know, you're quite right about that. But uh, it made for pretty poor defenses. Um, uh, it was supposed to, as you say, they were lighting these oil fires and, and tires to put smoke into the sky and be able to stop the uh, the bombers. But, you know, you've got precision-guided weapons. That just it made no difference to them whatsoever. So how many journalists were in your car? What's, what's the name of your car? Brenda. Brenda uh, the Defender. Many, uh, Brenda the Defender. Okay, so how many of you were in the car? Uh, three. Three of you. And you made it there, did you? Oh, we made it there. You Fine. Made it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something so large-scale as that. Uh, you know, I mean, what are you thinking the whole time? Or are you not really thinking? You just go into work mode. There was a bit of a are, you um, a... are you an adrenaline junkie, David Fox? There, there was definitely an element of that then. And and I have to say it became... But part of it, this, it, it became... A, the journey itself became part of the story rather than reporting the news. It was getting to Baghdad, you know, trying to... You know, so we could get into the office, so we could start reporting there, was became just as... A, just as important to us as reporting the news. And... You know, I, I recognize this in, in hindsight. I certainly didn't at the time. But I, I probably should have been pulled out of there a lot earlier because we, we had been, you know, under fire for too long. You know, they, uh, you know we, we were being traumatized and we, uh, we would have been better off yeah, at least getting a break. And, of course, the, there was this real, very w real terror of biological and chemical weapons. Were you and your little band of reporters well-equipped for something like that? Absolutely. And before the war started, I'd spent um, a couple of weeks in Britain going, you know, I was well-trained, you know, going through, um, you know, very serious uh, uh, hostile environment training courses and, and bioweapons and chemical weapons and all. You know, I could get into a biohazard suit in in under a minute, you know, with full gas mask and protections and all the rest of it. We, you know, we were very well trained. We, we really drilled. I mean, for example, you know, a Land Rover, an armored Land Rover Defender is, is weighs like a tank for heaven's sake. And, and before the invasion started, we used to put a stopwatch on ourselves and, and change tires, you know, and see how long it would take us to change a, change a wheel if we'd ever got, you know, uh, we, we took it seriously. We were well trained and we were well equipped. But how incredibly exciting. Tell us about driving Brenda the Defender into Saddam's, Saddam Hussein's palace in what would that have been in Tikrit. I, I've seen an incredible picture of a journalist swimming in an indoor pool surrounded by Rococo pillars and murals. Was that in Saddam's palace? And, and did you end up with any spoils of war? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. That journalist swimming in the pool wasn't me, actually. That was a few days after me. But uh, me and my colleagues, we were the first three journalists into his palace in, uh, in Tikrit, we, uh, which was the, 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 um, the, the Hussein family uh, village, if you like. But it had this huge sort of 150-acre 
uh, a complex which was full of luxury, luxury houses for him and his family and all the, you know, the, the favoured executives of the, of the Ba'ath regime. And there was a great deal of... Uh, Tikrit fell uh, a good week or so after Baghdad. It was the last place to fall because it was defended by his most loyal troops. But we managed to get between the lines and uh, ended up at Saddam Hussein's palace. And we literally walked through the front door and it was it was astonishing. I mean, I had a shower in his... Um, Gold-plated. Nah. Um, yeah, I, we were filthy after being on the road, and we <laughs> we luxuriated in fluffy towels and hot. You know, it, it was absolutely spectacular. And we, and he had this amazing pool table. We played pool there, and then I I stole his pool cue. It, his it was pool, one of the, his pool cue. His pool cue. It was one of those cues that goes down it that breaks down into two pieces. So I, I unscrewed it and. Um, and uh, and shoved it underneath my uh, my uh, flak vest because the the shelling was getting closer. It's hardly an exciting spoil of war, David. Well, I got a few other things as well. I actually removed the taps from one of his bathrooms. Oh shit! Okay, you, <laughs> right. Okay. Should you be telling us that? I got a uh, a dining uh, a tablecloth, which was must have been sixty foot long, with uh, gold embroidered screaming Iraqi eagles all down the centre which I gave to Elizabeth, and we were going to try and turn it, see if you could turn it into bedsheets, but uh, it, was, it, it was quite spectacular. I know I, uh, I did a fair bit of um, liberating, I think, uh, we like souvenirs only, though. I don't think there was, m there was much there after all the rest of the world press got through the, the press. Yeah, yeah. Another thing about that war, and I don't want to go on too much with Iraq because we have other wars to get onto, but uh, what was the overall feeling from Iraqis on the ground? Because there's an amazing BBC documentary called Once Upon a Time in Iraq, which I recommend everyone should watch. Um, but one quote from a US Marine was, we felt we had pried the doors of a mental institution. People were so fucked up from decades of terror. Uh, did you find that when you were driving in Brenda along the streets, uh, or were there no locals around? Uh, no, I mean, in, in a lot of places we went to, we were welcomed with open arms, I have to say, you know, as liberators, even though we weren't, you know, we were, you know, supposedly impartial. And, um, but it wasn't long after that, because the problem was, they, you know, the, the Americans completely dismantled every bit of administration in the country. Uh, and so there was nothing, there was this massive vacuum which just left it, left the country open for takeover by gangs, by militias, by factions. And undoubtedly factions, the creation of ISIS. And very much so, very much so. Yeah, they, and I think the Iraqis felt very much betrayed uh, after Desert Storm. With good they? reason. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, let's go on to Sri Lanka. I mean, another long, bloody war, 25-year war from 1983 to 2009. Um caused significant hardship for the population, the environment, the economy. I think about 100,000 people were killed uh, in the last estimate. Uh, w tell me about Sri Lanka. Did you go there often? I, I, my, most of my reporting in Sri Lanka was done uh, while the war was on, but more coverage of the tsunami that hit Sri Lanka. I mean, I, um, I, went, there, I went there the day after the Indian Ocean tsunami. Uh, for the first time and spent a lot of time there and went all the way around. I went up into the Tamil held areas and, you know, spoke to, um, you know, and, you know, spent time with the Tamil Tigers. Uh, but in fairness, there was a bit of a lull in fighting then. The, uh, the tsunami had put a bit of a shock to the system. Um, 
uh, you know, the country was in shell shock as a result of the tsunami. I mean, did the tsunami end that civil war it, as such? It certainly, um, it certainly played a, a major part in it. It, uh, it destroyed a lot of the infrastructure that the um, uh, Liberation Tigers of Tunnel Elam had. Uh, they suddenly were reliant on aid for the first time. Uh, and this opened the doors for the the Rajat Paksa brothers, who are now back in charge in uh, Sri Lanka, just in in the last few months, to do whatever they wanted there, and and, and sure enough, they did that. Uh, during your time in Pakistan, you experienced uh, one of the biggest earthquakes that regions ever had. Uh, tell us about that experience, because. There are so many natural disasters around the world, but this one was particularly bad, wasn't it? Yeah, that was in Musafarabad, um, in Kashmir, the capital of uh, uh, Pakistan-controlled Kashmir, um, which the whole area was very badly hit, and also parts of Indian-controlled Kashmir were very badly hit as well. And I've always found, you know, the difference between, you know, wars, I never get quite as upset covering them because... You know, it's easier to say good guys and bad guys, and you can sort of predict what happens, and you know that it's man-made. With uh, natural disasters such as this earthquake, I, I, I find very difficult. There's no explanation for what follows, you know. It's, uh, and Muzaffarabad was leveled. This was a big, substantial city, and it was, you know, literally leveled. And we got there, and there was, you know, we had to find somewhere to camp. There's nowhere, because everyone's houses had, um, had been flattened, so... You, you couldn't even go anywhere to go and, pardon my French, take a dump. You know, mm. There would be people camping. There were, it was just the most awful. And it was winter. It was snowing. It was it was really, really grim. And I do remember one day saying, That's, I need to go to the toilet. And I can't do it out in the open with all these people. This is, I've had enough. And I went into the, uh, there was a, the, one of the biggest buildings in Muzaffarabad. And it hadn't been entirely toppled, but it was looking very leaning tower of pizza-ish. Uh, it was the tax revenue office, and I, I went in there, and I walked up these very dodgy stairs, and I found a rather plush sort of executive office, which had a sit-down toilet. Of course, there's no running water or plumbing, but I thought, I don't care, I'm going to just leave a little deposit in here, my tax deposit, if you like. And so I, you know, dropped my trousers and perched on this glorious throne for, you know, finally being able, after three days without going to the loo, and there was this massive aftershock, and the ceiling came crashing down. And I just thought, that's going to be typical. I'm going to die on the toilet with my trousers around my ankles. That's going to be, on my, that's going to be my legacy. And that would get around Reuters and the news agencies incredibly quickly. Did you hear about David Box? It, it, it would, it would Caught not... literally with his pants down. Exactly that, exactly that. <laughs> um, and then you became the Reuters bureau chief in Jakarta. Uh, when was that? Uh, that was in 2011. 2011. So this led to you covering the J the Japan tsunami. <laughs> oh, indeed. And your rather sudden dismissal from Reuters after 21, 22 years working for them and having covered, I don't know how many wars, 11 wars, over 20 conflicts. I mean, it was quite a thing. I remember walking through the I was working at AFP at the time the French news agency and I remember working walking through the office at AFP in Hong Kong and all the correspondents went quiet and I asked I asked them you know said what's wrong and they said oh haven't you heard about your friend David Fox 
It's all over the wires. And of course, I just assumed you had been killed in Afghanistan because you were still going back to Afghanistan a lot. And it had become really difficult back uh, in the end of Afghanistan, hadn't it? So anyway, can you tell us uh, what ex in fact happened? You, you clearly weren't killed. You're here with me today. So what happened there, David? Well, it certainly killed my career, if there's one thing to, uh, <laughs> to say about it. No, I, w I, was, uh, I was based, I was bureau chief for Reuters in uh, Indonesia at the time when, when they Fuku the, the tsunami hit Japan and they had the Fukushima nuclear accident. And it, like every big uh, disaster story, I was immediately parachuted into the country to go and um, help with their coverage of it. And I'd only been there a, a day or so. Uh, I was in Tokyo uh, doing an overnight shift in the office. I was supposed to go up to Fukushima itself the next day uh, to do some reporting up there. And a, uh, a colleague in Singapore sent me a message, which I thought was a one-on-one a, a -on -one message, a bit like a WhatsApp message we have, but it's on our internal systems, uh, saying... So you thought it was a private message? I thought it was a private message, uh, uh, saying, uh, so how's the uh, radiation? Uh, has your hair started to fall out yet? And uh, I think uh, any of your listeners don't know, I am quite well-renowned for my completely chromium dome, it's I, I, it, it is completely shaved head. <laughs> so I uh, I replied, and I'm not proud of it. It was a, it was a crass and uncouth thing to say. Uh, I said, well, wouldn't be a bad thing in Japan because, um, uh, of course, the ladies too tend to grow their pubes. And as I say, I, I'm not proud of what I said. It, it's it, it's uh, but I thought it was some locker room uh, talk between uh, two very old friends. Uh, but unfortunately, it was in a closed message group, and uh, about eight or nine other people uh, were in that message group who saw it. And and the powers that be uh, said that was uh, a gross misconduct, and, and I was giving my marching orders after, as you say, it was after uh, 23 years. Very, uh, yeah. Quite an illustrious uh, career. Right, forgetting your actual dismissal from Reuters, tell us... What was it like in Tokyo in the aftermath of that tsunami and the nuclear power station leak? It was absolutely freaky. I mean, I'd been to Tokyo a few times before. And I think uh, you've been to uh, Tokyo as well, Peter, and you know that it, 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 it's, it is a very alien city. It's a fantastic place to be, but it's full of neon and, and very foreign signage everywhere and, and people rushing around. And it... it it reminds me, it's very much like that sort of Blade Runner. You Blade know. Runner, absolutely. It's, you know, cliched as it is to say that it's very much like that. But, um, but, but bear in mind that the, the Japanese and, and, and radiation, nuclear, it's, it's, a, it's a very big thing. There's people alive who survived the, uh, the atom bombs on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the fear was palpable. And you know, I, was in, I got to Tokyo the day after the accident. And I was staying at the Imperial Hotel, which is about four or five blocks from where the Reuters office was, and there was no one around. I, I remember walking from, from the uh, hotel to the office at about 10 in the evening, and there wasn't a car on the road. There wasn't a shop open. There wasn't a restaurant. It was, it was deserted. I've never seen anything. You know, one of the busiest cities in the world was literally everyone had buggered off. They'd all gone south. To you know, to escape any danger of the radiation, it was it was astonishing. It was very, very freaky. I mean, how safe is that nuclear reactor now? Uh, well, it, it's a lot of um, 
it depends who you talk to, but I, I, they appear to have done a pretty good job on it. Uh, the, the actual city itself is still off limits, and there's a lot of um, uh, the, the wastewater they used to put out the fire, they're having to get rid of it, and it's, it's, they're struggling to find places to put it. Um, but it's an issue that's going to go on for years and years. Generations. So you moved to Bali, the beautiful paradise island of Bali, where you, you were happy but rather tormented because you really couldn't get any decent work. Um, and this led to, and this is in your own words, the most hostile environment of all, your incarceration in the infamous Carabican jail. But if people want to hear about David's Annus Horribilis, you'll just have to wait, as he and I will be doing a Banged Up Abroad episode entirely devoted to that horrific 10 months in 2016. But before we go, David, you're now at AFP in Hong Kong. I think... Conflict probably just follows you around. Twelve months ago, we were a sleepy, law-abiding financial house. And then I arrived. And now today, we're a deeply divided, plague-riddled society. And if you're a journalist and you haven't been pepper-sprayed in Hong Kong, you really haven't even arrived yet. Um, I can hardly recognize the city anymore. Have you enjoyed working on the Hong Kong story? I mean, it's quite a fascinating story how quickly it's unfolding and how the media organizations are thinking, or some are starting to leave the territory because of this oppressive national security law. Yeah, I haven't done the frontline reporting in Hong Kong as, like my, uh, as much as my colleagues have done, but you don't have to be a reporter in Hong Kong to have uh, been on the front lines of the protests here. And have been, I think everybody in Hong Kong has been tear-gassed at some point in the last year. Um, and no, it's, it's fascinating uh, seeing the changes that have been wrought in, in, the, last, uh, in the last 18 months. I and, mean, for those of and you scary. who aren't really aware of this national security law, it was passed by Beijing without a single Hong Kong person ever setting eyes on it first, not even the Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam. Yet officials and organizations, including HSBC and Standard Chartered, almost fell over each other as they lined up to endorse it. What do you think, David, the future holds for Hong Kong right now? I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball, but what are your, what's your opinion on this? Well, it's difficult to be optimistic at the moment, especially with the... You know, you see the changes of how the media, you know, some of the, th we can't report some things now. We can't even quote someone as saying something anymore without it, us being guilty ourselves of, uh, of uh, breaching the national security law. And as soon as you get that kind of restriction on, the, on reporting and on the press, you know, it's, it's game over. Uh, we've already seen New York Times is uh, upping sticks and moving to South Korea. There's going to be a lot of, uh, this used to be the media hub of this part of the world, of... Um, of uh, North Asia, and I'm not sure it's going to be that in, in five years' time. And people are pulling stories retrospe uh, retroactively, is that the right word? Um, you know, stories that were written or told before the national security law came in, so that's how worried people are. I mean, it's all rather depressing and very strange times we live in. Um, but I personally love having you here in Hong Kong, David.
Well, it's great to be here, and it's great to you know be spending time with you, Pete, and especially as I say, back to where we started on your beautiful balcony overlooking your wonderful garden. And we did have a few planes going overhead. I think those are the only two planes we've had all week because of COVID. But anyway, listen, David. Sadly, we're out of time. Um, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood, and I look forward to speaking to you about your time as a Balinese jailbird, one who has, in the great words of Charles. Dickens, flown the coop. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yes, that's, uh, that, is, that deserves a, uh, a session of its own, that's for sure. But thanks for having me, Pete. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure. David, thanks very much. Um, and we will listen to you again about your story from the Bali jail in a later episode. Bye. Cheerio. That was my good friend David Fox trying to get a word in edgeways between aeroplanes and dogs and drilling from renovation. But thankfully, no black hawks or missiles this time. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.